This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. I was verbally and mentally abused and harassed from a coach, and I lost my confidence, myself, and who I was. As a driver of bobsled, if I'm not mentally there and okay, I go down and I crash. I risk not only my life, but somebody else's. I knew it the second I joined Team USA that I did the right thing. I had to risk it all in order to, for myself, get away but in order to make a difference. And I still hope moving forward, the athletes a part of Bobsled Canada continue to fight for themselves and fight for a safe environment. Kaylee Humphreys grew up in Calgary, Alberta, where the legacy of the 1988 Olympics brought her up close and personal to the sport of bobsledding. She dreamed of becoming an Olympian one day and thought this might be her path to do it. Kaylee took a risk and tried out for a camp on a whim which was her first stepping stone to joining the national team. She went on to win gold medals at the 2010 and 2014 Winter Olympic Games. She was living out her dream, but heading into the next Olympics, under a new coach, her mental health began to decline. The hostile environment, the pressure, and self-doubt Kaylee had been feeling during training didn't seem normal. In August 2018, Kaylee filed a harassment complaint with Bobsleigh Canada, saying she no longer felt safe training, and accused her head coach of verbal and mental abuse. The claim led to an investigation and ultimately forced Kaylee to make a decision about the future of her career with Team Canada. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindside. Mental health, sports, and life. Usually we like to start by asking a little bit about good Canadian girl. What was it like growing up in your house? Tell us a little bit about your early life as far as your family, your experience. So I am the oldest of three girls in my family, born and raised, grew up in Calgary, Alberta. I think obviously with the legacy from the 88 Olympics and having the bobsled track there, it allowed for me the opportunity to understand the sport, to know what it is. Um, Obviously, with it being the Cool Runnings Olympics, of course, everybody knows Cool Runnings, but I grew up ski racing and Mount Norquay out in Kananaskis and just being out in Banff quite a, quite a bit. That was my first love of sports, but I grew up playing all different types of sports. So whether it was t-ball, volleyball, track and field for one year, it was a very brief track and field, but most of what I did and what I loved and what I really wanted to go to the Olympics for was ski racing. And when I realized at about 16, it wasn't going to happen. I just wasn't at the level I needed to be and knew I wasn't having the fun that I needed to and wasn't at the skill that some of my teammates were. The realization hit and I went searching for another sport. I knew I didn't want to give up on my dream of being an Olympic athlete. But I knew in skiing, it just wasn't going to happen. And so that's when I went searching. And it was between bobsled and speed skating. For me, I've always been really strong for a female and I've had really big legs. So I thought, okay, what could be good? You know, how how can I use this as as an asset? And both of those two sports looked really fun. And so I just went on Google and looked it up. And was there a tryout camp? And I showed up and gave it a shot. Where did the love for speed come from? Uh, Your guess is as good as mine when it comes to that. (laughs) I have no idea. I think... Something internally in me just enjoys it. The thrill of going fast is something I enjoy. I don't like the feeling when your stomach comes up, like when you're on a roller coaster. I hate that. So I don't love thrill-seeking things. Like if I never go bungee jumping, I'm fine in my entire life. I could care less. Or like skydiving. No, thank you. So like it's not a thrill thing. It's definitely a speed thing. But I don't know. I think internally it's always just what has got me really excited and and what I enjoy. I can't believe you just said that, that you're not thrill seeking when <laughs> you're going down a hill, like bobsledding and now with- There's the, limits the to my thrill seeking, must. we'll say that. Can you talk a little bit about your early career, how things uh, started out for you, what your experience was like? My goodness, I mean, storied career, because we do want to focus on some of the challenges down the road, but tell us about the highlights leading up to- some of those challenges? Definitely. I've had some major highs and some major lows throughout my career. I think anybody 
you know, that's had a career in any avenue whatsoever would be able to say the same thing. Highlights throughout my career, obviously getting to compete in Vancouver at a home Olympics, being able to win gold at a home Olympics, that will forever be a highlight. Vancouver will always have a soft spot being I got to compete at home in front of a home crowd and that was my first Olympic gold medal. And so the memories there and just the things that I got to be a part of and what's, you know, ingrained in my brain, a part of that Olympics, the friends, the other Team Canada athletes that were so much a part of everything, they made the experience as a whole so complete. And so... And that will probably forever be my favorite. But each Olympics has been very different. Sochi was really great being able to be the first and only to defend an Olympic title within our sport, within bobsled. That was something that everybody said couldn't happen, hadn't happened, probably wouldn't. And so to be able to ignore a lot of what people said and and make history in that sense, it was a very, very cool realization. And I really grew as a leader in myself as an athlete. I wasn't the rookie anymore on the team like I was in Vancouver. It wasn't a fluke, you know, where just you happen to be there because it's your home country. For me, that was the first time I really knew, okay, I know what I'm doing. I know plan and process. I know how to get the best on myself. And, you know, the result proved it. Going obviously into Pyeongchang, after day one, I was sitting in fifth and to fight to get back on the podium. And having been through that whole entire Olympic season in 2018 and to survive, I feel so strong. And I, as a female athlete, feel a lot more resilient. And I know internally, and my heart knows, if I can make it through that and still be successful, then I can make it through anything. And I am very proud of the result that Felicia and I got in 2018 because of that. Fast forward to the next four years going into this past Olympics in 2022 and switching countries, becoming a dual citizen, competing and being the oldest rookie on the team I think ever imaginable. It definitely, you know, I had to start again from scratch completely. And so to be able to do that and work my way back to the top of the Olympic podium when literally about two and a half weeks before the Olympics, I wasn't sure I was even going it definitely tested a lot of my faith, my strength, my endurance, my confidence as an athlete. And so um, to know not only that it worked, but to play with my emotions that way, that will forever be an Olympic performance and podium performance that will go down in history in my memories. And just the pride that I felt being able to to stand on that podium was huge. I was in the Olympics in 94, only one silver, <laughs> not gold, as Mike Keenan told me. But what I learned there was as a hockey player, the Olympics was obviously huge, but there was always the NHL to go to for us. Biggest thing I learned there is athletes such as yourself, you train for four years. You don't make any money, really. It's, And then you have a minute to show what you can do, a, a minute and a half. And when you see the tears and the joy, or that's what makes the Olympics great, is, is that it's such an emotional event. What is that like knowing and the pressure that you've trained for four years? How do you handle that? As an athlete, I am in control of my performance and I don't know how it's going to go. Nobody can predict the future. And yes, the pressure is extremely high. At the end of the day, though, all I can do is my very best. Um, Marnie McBean was one that that taught me right from early on going into my first Olympics where I was feeling a lot of pressure, not outside, but internally to be able to perform. You know, from that standpoint, I was like, how do I, and even going to 2014, I reached out to her too, because I was like, okay, how, you've been there, you've defended an Olympic title, like this is normal, I'm doubting myself, all these things. I have a plan and a process and I'm going to execute it the best I can. And that plan and process that I make, definitely, if it all works, will lead to the top of the podium. But as I have learned, having a bronze medal to it, it doesn't always work. And there are outside sources that play a factor. I can't control everything. It's why this last Olympics, I trained for three years not knowing if I was going to get citizenship in time and go to the Games. But I knew if I was to get there, I had to be able to go, yes, I've done everything over the last three years to have no regrets on this line. And for me, that helps alleviate some of it. I don't know if there is a magic trick that you can to help deal with the pressure or stress for us 
as you said, this is the biggest. We don't have the NHL. Bobsledders don't have a professional league that we can get to. Um, we make $20,000 a year. If you're lucky and you're one of the top couple in the world, you're going to make an extra 10,000 euros in prize money per year. And that's about it. So you're making like 30, 40 grand a year. If you're lucky to get a sponsor or two, which again is going to be a couple of us, you can kind of make a decent living off of it. But again, it's it's not great. Um, and so you definitely have to rely on a lot of the outside sources, speaking engagements, appearances, the sponsorships that you can get being an Olympic athlete to be able to do this full time, which is what's required to compete with, you know, the Germans or the Canadians or the Americans or the Italians or, you know, whoever else you're competing against. But yeah, it really comes down to the three and a half minutes. We've got two days of competition, four runs, combined time on all, which I personally appreciate. It's not just one and go, you have to perform consistently for four runs straight and it's the best person that wins. And that should be what the Olympics is about, is not just a one-time thing, but all four runs. And so it really does change the game in our sport too. You mentioned something about the ups and downs, the challenges. The, the reality is that whatever you're doing, you're going to run into difficult people and also great people. But you said there was something important about being a woman. What does that mean for you? What did being female, as far as helping you or not helping you, what, what did that mean when you mentioned that? Our sport is very male-dominated. And I grew up throughout this sport when women weren't offered the same amount of prize money. To date, in Monobob, women get $0 in prize money on the World Cup. Men get a full amount of 20,000 euros worth of prize money for both events. They get 20,000 euros for two men, 20,000 euros for four men. Women do the exact same tracks. We race two races every week, just like the men. We do a total of nine races, including Worlds, and we get $0 for our whole entire second event. It's been two years now since they introduced Monobob at the highest level, and we're still receiving zero. So that's today. That's currently in 2022. So in the sport, though, when I started 0203, women weren't allowed on all the same bobsled tracks, Cortina Italy being one and others. You're not skilled enough. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough. Um, you know, it's too dangerous for you. The sport's too hard. And then it upgrades to, well, men have two events and women only have one event. And I was a huge advocate and proponent from 2014 to 18 in showcasing that women deserve greater opportunities. But I've been limited as a female throughout my entire career and other women have too. And we've been looked down upon based on our gender and lack of skill without any merit whatsoever. And so for a year I took a men's crew and we competed against the men in four men. I took an entire women's crew to show that an entire women's crew can do the workload. We are skilled enough. But in our sport, with it being gravity-based, weight being a portion, as well as the weight of the sleds and the start and the speed and the strength required, you know, I wanted to showcase we could do it, but that it wasn't going to be equal men versus women. So we just want our own category. That led to the addition of Monobob. So being able to win that Olympic medal for the first time was absolutely amazing. We now have equal medal opportunity, but I want to see it go further. I want men to do monobob. I want women to do four men. I want actual equal numbers of participation worldwide. I want greater opportunity within sport where gender doesn't determine what track you can be on. Women got put in tents outside when men got real nice warm start houses. Um, I've been around, I've seen, I know I've experienced a lot of these scenarios. And so when I say as a female, it's because I've been diminished as a female. I've had coaches look down upon me. Well, girls could never do this. Women can never do this. I'll quit before women drive for men. What are you talking about? This is how you need to do it. You know, I know, I know, I know. I'm like, how do you know this is what you need you don't have Olympic gold medals. I do. So how are you going to tell me? But from a man's perspective, it has to be right. And so to be diminished based on my gender, to know that that's a big issue within our sport, it really can reduce my self-worth, my confidence. I'm a bit bullheaded when it comes to certain scenarios and I, and I don't believe that. And I grew up in a household where that wasn't the case. I was never diminished based on my gender. And I've had some amazing coaches that have built me up to the point when I know that these things aren't true. And so those people have definitely made a difference in my life and, and career. And I want to be able to make sure that the sport understands that women are strong. We are fierce and passionate and skilled and we deserve every opportunity. And if I got to show you 
I'll show you in person. If it's, you know, political, we can have it out verbally to till the cows come home for me to prove this. But at the end of the day, it's, it's definitely something I'm very passionate about is showcasing the strength that women have. And for me, especially going through 2018 with a coach that diminished me and made me feel less than human, less than a confident athlete, but where I lost myself. I don't want anybody else to go through that. And I'm not super proud of that because I've always thought of myself as a very strong female mentally and physically. So to know that I was affected in such a great way, it's not great, but I am also aware of it and I want people to learn and grow from it and for it not to be something that is a negative, but that, you know, we're, we're affected by our surroundings and coaches play a big part. And so we need to build everybody up. I've come to the point in, in my life over being in different roles, go ahead and underestimate me. It's at your peril. That's, that's kind of the sense that I get because it is a man's world. But I can tell you, just from listening to you, psychologically, you certainly seem pretty damn powerful, very <laughs> strong. Can you walk us through the challenge with your coach that I know became very public during the Olympics? Tell us a little bit about how it started, what was happening, and then when you went, wait a minute, or someone else told you, wait a minute, this ain't right. Yeah. In 2018, in the Olympic year, right before, like a couple weeks before our season started, we got uh, a new head coach. So there was some coach shifting, a new head coach was named. And I went in very optimistic. I thought, okay, I have heard stories of what he's like in the past, but I'm not going to judge somebody based on stories of other people. I don't know who they are. I'm a strong female. I'm super confident. I'm going to work with him. We're going to make this happen. You know, we've got the Olympics in like three and a half, four months. I want to go to 2018 and defend an Olympic title for the third time and be the first in bobsled history ever for men or women. And I went in super gung-ho. Right from the very first week, him and I butted heads. And it resulted in me crying and feeling very overwhelmed and very frustrated. I was, and throughout the next three months, publicly humiliated, demeaned in front of teammates at the top of bobsled tracks, verbally and mentally abused and harassed. And I started to lose not only my confidence, but myself. I felt less than a human being. This is from a coach that I think visually people need to understand is 6'4", 250 pounds, comes from a professional ultimate fighting background. So not only am I feeling overwhelmed as an athlete with how I'm being talked to, degraded, diminished, demeaned, I'm physically scared. You can't stand up for yourself in that scenario when you're physically threatened and scared, which is how I felt. I definitely was used as if we can diminish Kaylee and make her less and she just becomes subservient, then everybody else will be scared. And everybody and every female in our sport was operating from that scenario and a place of fear is what I felt. And it, it definitely was not high performance, but throughout the next three months, from when he was named until we got to the Olympics, there were multiple incidents or scenarios when, like I said, it was publicly humiliated, demeaned based on my gender, based on who I was. I was targeted, um, threatened physically and mentally, and I lost my confidence, myself and who I was, and I regularly was crying. Um, and I asked to go home about a month before the Olympics. I threw my hands up. I went to the leadership of part of Bobsled Canada and I said, send me home. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be an athlete anymore. I, I quit. And I never thought a month before the Olympics, I would ever get to the point when not only was I not having fun, I didn't recognize myself and I knew I couldn't put my best foot forward in this scenario. And there was nothing I could do to get out of it. And the leadership that was there to protect me was doing nothing. I was regularly told, well, he's the head coach. You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. And I was not removed. I wasn't provided another coach as a means. So we got to the Olympics and the Federation and myself uh, separated so that I could compete at the Olympics in a positive environment. The Canadian Olympic 
committee was aware of it, and so was Bobsled Canada, and the head coach had no communication with me whatsoever. Didn't do video with me. We didn't talk at all or say a single word during the entire Olympics, and it was amazing. It was bliss, and I started to find and understand more of what safety in that environment looks like, what a toxic environment and culture looks like. And I could start to differentiate, and I started to come back to life um, on who I was, how I felt as a female first and foremost, but also as an athlete, um, I was in a safe environment with people that I trusted. And I got back from the Olympics and I hit a huge depressive state. I went to the Federation. I asked for help. I was having physical issues, so rashes and hives all over my body. I was getting migraines daily. There was a lot of physical issues I was having and I was not supported. So I had to go seek. I went to go get a brain scan in Toronto where I paid and did it all myself. Um, Went to a naturopath, got diagnosed with depression, you know, was taking medications for that. So medically, as well as like physiologically, there was a lot that was happening. And I also, I've been through an Olympics. This isn't normal for me. And people go, it's just the post-Olympic blues. And everyone seems to have an excuse for it when they want to hide it. And that's what I felt. And so for me, then it was starting to break down. Well, this isn't normal for me. And this, I can't live like this. And so in recognizing those things, I started working with a psychologist as well as a sports psychologist. It was something, again, the Federation refused to fund. So I needed to go outside of the system to support that myself. And I found an amazing sports psych and she was awesome. And so in breaking down the season in breaking down how I felt, the reactions, the environment that I was put in, the position and how I internally felt as an athlete and how scared I was physically as well as emotionally and mentally for my safety and well-being, um, I knew that I was not okay to return to sport in that environment. And I needed to say something. But as an athlete, I was scared because by speaking up, you risk losing your career, having your funding taken away, not being believed, getting kicked off the team. There's coach's discretion and it overrules everything. And if you make a claim, you know, I had to be aware that I was potentially risking my entire career. And unfortunately, that's what happened. I made the claim. And within a month and a half, my entire carding and stipend got taken away. And I was no longer nominated from the exact guy that was named in my claim, refused to nominate me moving forward to Sport Canada. And with that removal, it removed insurance, training environments, all my doctors, everything I'd spent 16 years building my career up to, all got taken away in an instant while a quote unquote investigation happened. So the same people that I forged my complaint against got to nominate an investigator I had no choice over it, and they got to basically investigate themselves. So from there, it it very rapidly disintegrated. I took the year off. The thing people need to understand, too, I think, about this is it's not just about me, because in our sport, and especially in 2018, and until 2020, we never had monobob. We had one event. Somebody else's life is in my hands. As a driver of bobsled, if I'm not mentally there, and okay, I go down. People have died. 2005 was the last time a female driver had passed away. If I'm not there and I crash, I risk not only my life, but somebody else's. And I have to physically be able to react, focus on the tracks in order to do our sport safely. And if I don't, I launch us out and we die. People in Vancouver are very aware of this as they saw a Georgian athlete, um, you know, make a very simple, easy mistake and pass away in 2010. And Whistler being the fastest track in the world and a very dominant, you know, the only track in Canada right now for bobsled, you have to be there. And I take the sport seriously. I take my responsibility as an athlete and as a leader on this team seriously, which is also why I chose to stand up and say something because I know as an Olympic athlete, if it ended my career, I've had a great career. It's been successful. And I can say that. And I was proud of my career and I was and still am a part of Team Canada. And I had to risk it all in order to, for myself, get away but in order to make a difference and try and bring more awareness, which is why I chose to leave instead of stay and try and fight even longer. I tried to stay for an entire year. I gave up no funding. I gave up everything. And I tried to fight a system for them and for the future for an entire year. And I had to walk away for myself. But I got here to Team USA and the support that I felt from this team overrode anything negative. And for me, I knew I was speaking my truth. I knew what I did was right, and I knew it was for my physical and mental well-being. My grandfather was a dual citizen. 
I had always planned to become, and I am now a dual citizen. I'm not giving one up for the other. My career in Canada was amazing, and it always will be. It was a 16-year career. And by making the claims, it ended my career. Not a choice I wanted, a choice that the program and everybody else put me in. And it ended one, and I got to start fresh and anew. And being a part of Team USA has showed me and provided and empowered me in a way that I never knew possible. I know it's not going to be the popular opinion of people, but I walked into an environment where they believed and it had nothing to do with gender. What do you need to perform? And I'm like, is this a trick question? And like, how can we get more out of you? And what do you want? And like, how do you see this going for the younger athletes? And I had a voice, I had an opinion on my performance. I felt empowered again and I felt safe. Most importantly, I wasn't scared to speak my mind. I didn't feel like I had to be scared of my environment. If I said something, what was physically going to happen to me? I got to just exist and be an athlete. And that was such a breath of fresh air that walking into a new environment and starting again, although it was extremely hard and financially draining, it was motivating at the same time. And I knew it the second I joined Team USA that I did the right thing. And that I hope, and I still hope moving forward, that the athletes a part of Bobsled Canada continue to fight for themselves and fight for a safe environment because the same people are still there. Every athlete in Canada deserves a safe environment. And I would like and hope to think that by me standing up, it doesn't just affect a bobsled, that it's helping gymnastics and rugby and all the other sports that exist in Canada. It's, it's shedding a new light on the treatment of athletes, on protocols, on abuse of power and process and how athletes are so vulnerable in these situations because your hopes and goals and dreams are wrapped up in a single person whether it be a head coach, a CEO, a high performance director, they have power and input over your therapist, your coaching staff, your equipment. And these processes aren't meant to keep athletes safe. It's meant, I personally feel, to protect administrations. And we need to have checks and balances. We need somebody to be looking and holding these organizations accountable or athletes will never achieve their full potential and will never fully feel safe in their environment. And that's a big shame. And so it, it needs to change. You're going to change it. I'm just like calling that right now. <laughs> I hope so. I know. Just bring I know. awareness to it. And I know it's not going to be just me. And I, I hope yeah. it's not. So it's going to take everybody, you guys as well, doing this podcast, bringing awareness to it to change, but it is something that has to happen. You're caught in the middle. Not only do you have the emotional burden of being abused, but you also have your countrymen who are so proud of you, not believing you or questioning you or how could you do this? So I'm not surprised you ended up fighting with your mental health. It wasn't fair. And I, I'm sorry that you had to endure that. Depression is different for every person. What was it like for you when you, when you knew something's not right here? And I, I know you had physical symptoms. Tell us a little bit about what, what depression meant for you. For me, I wouldn't leave the house for like days on end. Uh, it became to the point walking the dog was too much and I didn't want to leave or get off the couch. And I just wanted to not sleep. I wasn't tired. I just had zero energy or luster for any type of life in any capacity. I knew talking about bobsled specific things would trigger this huge panic attack in me. Um, I would start to like breathe really heavy. I'd start to over talk and get really stressed. And like the littlest conversation, even in a positive manner about the sport would trigger this huge reaction. Um, and mentally, I knew this was not a normal reaction for me. And so having a combination of those two with the physical symptoms that I had, I went, something's not right. And I've always seen sports psychologists since I was a kid throughout sport. I'm not ashamed of it. I think it's something that can be used as a very successful tool for athletes in balancing personal real life with sport life and mixing both of those things. It's a big portion as to the, the tools that I learned in this skill set, how I was able to focus on one over the other and compartmentalize. But the environment I was in was so empowering and amazing. And the support that I got from, you know, my community and the people in my cul-de-sac and my teammates and my coaching staff and just how I got to exist, I started to heal. And it made it the right choice understanding and feeling that versus thinking it. When I was in Team Canada, I thought, well, maybe this will be better here. 
And the U.S. is, and everybody looks and goes, okay, USA Gymnastics, and, you know, nobody's perfect. I can guarantee you, you go to Germany, they got safe sport issues too. Everywhere around the world has issues with this topic. The problem is, and what I at least respect about U.S. right now is they're taking, and whether they were forced to or not, they're taking a lot of those challenges, and they're really trying to knock down a lot of walls. And I got to see some of, they're, they're 15 years ahead of where we are in Canada with safe sport issues, with athletes agreements, athletes councils, the rules and regulations they have. We have to go on as Team USA athletes, background checks as athletes, as coaching staff, as leaders, everyone has to do it every year. Every couple of years, you got to have them done. You have to do a safe sport online every year, hour and a half quiz and test where you learn about targeting harassment, who to go to, how to report, things that didn't, didn't exist and don't exist in Canada as a whole, in order to be on the team, here's all about safe sport. You know, it never existed. And I hope that it does. And I hope that by me making such a big show that it will help the athletes there. But I got to come into a system that is, you know, 10 years ahead and it felt awesome. And everyone was so welcoming, like I said. So it made the transition super easy and it makes it so that I can honestly say I am very proud to be an American in where they're at. I hope I can help them grow with the experiences that I've seen and learned and, and prevent it from happening to other people in, in the U.S. system. And we can help change the Canadian system. And just, again, for me, I've got enough love in my heart. It's not what country you're from. It's who you are as a person. I don't care if you're Canadian, American, German. If you're an athlete, you're an athlete. If you're a passionate person and you're dedicated to what you're doing, whether you're an Olympic athlete, a heart surgeon, or a librarian, or a teacher, congratulations, good for you. You motivate me just by being another badass female or just by being somebody that goes after it. And so those distinctions and not relying solely on me feeling like my only worth, which again, this took a lot of work with a psychologist, but my worth wasn't wrapped up. And I, it took a couple years for me to realize this. It wasn't wrapped up in Canadian sport. My worth wasn't, I'm Kaylee Humphreys, the Canadian Olympic gold medalist. And this is the only place I'm valued. No, I'm valued as a human being, as a female athlete, as a wife, as a daughter, as an auntie. I'm valued as an Olympic athlete, as somebody who's passionate and dedicated in what they do, as a bobsledder as a whole. And when I started to rebuild my confidence after it got beat down and diminished and I basically felt about this thin at the end and my worth was nothing because I wasn't even good enough as a double Olympic champion and as a female, then... It took a while and I rebuilt it and I realized, and I am much stronger for it. And I don't want any athlete to ever get to that position. And I don't think that they should ever have to feel that way. We accept abuse of athletes and people as a way of coaching in society. And it's, and it's so wrong. It's so wrong. There's TV shows out there where, and I won't mention them, <clears throat> cooking shows, Hell's Kitchen, where people... It's we watch people abuse people into being better, and it's ridiculous. I've had coaches where they didn't like you or whatever, but at least I could get traded. At least I could go somewhere else. You couldn't go anywhere else. But the question I have, when does abuse and discipline, when does it cross the line with, with coaching? When does that cross the line for an athlete? What's acceptable and what's not? For me, it, it is a fine line. You know it when you see it. I have had coaches that have been hard on me. At the same point, my self-worth, my confidence was never diminished. I never felt less than because I made a mistake or because I thought a certain way or because this is what I needed to move forward. I can take yelling, but the respect has to be there. The communication has to be there. The trust and the relationship between the athlete and coach in that scenario needs to be there, and it needs to be very clear. There's this misconception, as you said, that you need to be hard to get the most out of people. I can guarantee you, and maybe it's just me, but I don't think so, the best coaches I've had have empowered me to be better, have helped me believe that anything is possible and given me a greater skill set to produce. They've never diminished, demeaned, demoralized 
humiliated, threatened, or made me feel unsafe in my environment. I never felt I was going to be physically hit or threatened or punished. And so there is a line and it is a very distinct line. It might not be thick, but it's very distinct on when that line gets crossed on being hard on somebody, but also abusing them. Like I said, you know, when you see it, you can feel it, you can hear it. It is a visual as well as, you know, a mental and an an emotional thing. If you're going home crying every day and your self-worth gets diminished and you don't even recognize who you are, you doubt every second of your existence versus like, okay, I made a mistake. I probably shouldn't have. Sounds good. And you move forward. And the next day it's just new. Or you can't chuck water bottles at athletes. There's certain things you just, you can't do anymore. This is where we are now. And the most success I've had is being around coaches that have empowered me to be better and that have pushed me to my limits, but never made me doubt or question who I was as an athlete as a human being, as a person, they just took what I had internally and helped fuel it. And if I said on certain days, I'm done. Okay. Sounds good. Not, you have to stay here and keep going and I'm going to beat you down until this happens. Um, that was a communication. It was a, a dialogue on the process and procedure. And I think that that also needs to happen amongst athletes and coaches for sure. The entire group around you was afraid. So everyone saw it. Everyone Mm -hmm. knew they were living it themselves. Some of them, not to the extent necessarily, but everyone was there. How did you feel when you were standing alone? Because they knew. I was disappointed. I can't blame them. I'm not mad. I'm not frustrated. I knew I I couldn't put anybody else in the crosshairs because that would directly conflict with what I was trying to do, which was keep athletes safe as a whole. So I needed to make it solely about me and hope that other athletes stood up. At the same point, you know, I, I recognized that the environment as a whole was so toxic that it was going to be hard for them to stand up. The hardest part for me wasn't not watching them stand up. It was hearing a couple of the lies or hearing certain athletes say, Kaylee's lying and this doesn't exist because I never had it. Yeah, because you're a, a white male, you never had it. Or like hearing specific scenarios and watching people. And then four years later, hearing them be like, well, actually, and I'm like, wow, now I'm frustrated. Way to just become unreliable as a human being. So it definitely has changed my perspective on some of my teammates. But I think as a whole, I don't blame them. You can't come out and talk bad about a coach and then hope that you're still going to make the team four years later and not be, you know, not have your funding taken away. And we look at it and go, well, if it can happen to you, it can happen to anybody. But the higher an athlete goes, the more likely they are to be verbally, mentally, or sexually abused because you become one of the 1% of the 1% and that you become a very easy target because you are at the highest. And people go, well, if it can happen to you, it can certainly happen to me. So they make examples of those people. And I found myself as somebody, you know, I was being used to make an example. So everybody else fell in line and we wouldn't get anybody else standing up. We wouldn't get anybody else coming forward. If we do this and this and this, this will keep everybody else in line. Diane, it's easy to see when someone's been punched or hit, there's a bruise or there's a mark, but we always talk about when it's emotional scars, though, you know, how do you deal? Because you can't see them, obviously. So what are some of the things you look for with the emotional scars? And and how do you prove, as the person that's being abused emotionally, that you are being abused. Like in, in Kaylee's case, I mean, this has gone on for years of her trying to prove to the world almost that, that she's being emotionally abused by somebody. But since you can't see it, you're like, they don't believe that it's happened. It's difficult. And I think most important off the top is to say that while we tend to focus on someone who has been physically or sexually abused as if that's the worst kind of abuse, The emotional abuse, those undercurrents of uh, crazy, really, that, you know, people know I am being harmed, I'm being hurt, but no one understands, no one sees it, no one believes it. It's just 
as impactful as those physical or sexual challenges that that people face, the abuse that they face. And I think what happens with emotional situations like this is that people often think I'm doing it, maybe it's me, you know, how do I change? How do I maybe act in a different way? They're getting feedback from people that love them saying, well, you know, maybe try this or try that. So they try that for some time. It takes a while for it to gel for them. And I think Kaylee kind of shared that. I think either way, you have to determine, first of all, is there some kind of power differential abuse that's going on? And the best way to be able to do that is to write it down. So as you're going through a difficult time, write down what's happening. It'll allow you to process it, but it'll also give a chain of events that the person who's the outsider in it is able to possibly see what you're seeing. If they're telling you, I don't see that, then you have to have a a personal reflection on yourself. What's going on inside me that I may be applying these feelings towards this person? It's not easy. Then when you see a professional and laid out for them, they go, this is an abusive relationship. How can we approach this? Because they can also help you with making a plan to find a solution. Most importantly, though, in these kinds of situations where there is a big power differential, like in an elite athlete environment, it's an uphill struggle. And this is why a culture change is is required. You said something very important, write it down. Write it down when it happens. We, We tend to not write those things down. And then you're trying to explain to somebody else what happened. A, maybe your memory's a little bit vague because it happened a while ago. It, it was words. And then if it gets into a situation that escalates, well, it's your word against theirs. So you said thing. the biggest thing I heard was to write it down. They're called contemporaneous notes. They're notes that you make with the date, this is what happened. And there's two things that can be helpful for this. Number one is... You can reflect on it. Think about, okay, how could I maybe approach this differently? It gives you an opportunity for self-reflection. Added to that is the fact that it also helps to reinforce, yeah, that did happen. That is real. I'm not making that up. Because sometimes I think the further you get away from things, then you think, well, maybe I was overreacting. You're right. Because we don't want this to happen. We don't want to be going through this. So we're trying to come up with excuses. And then you read it and go, oh, my God. Oh, that was terrible. That's right. I Because, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I happen to be very good at is forgetting things I don't like. Things <laughs> difficult or painful things, I do my best to forgive, forget, and move on. But in these circumstances where you're thinking, okay, why am I feeling awful all the time to be able to go back and go, yeah, that is awful. And if it happened to anyone, they'd feel bad. That can be helpful in making sure that you are reinforcing the fact that you're not making this up. This is real. So here's the thing. When you're another athlete and you see this happening to somebody else, the reason you don't say anything or do anything is because you know there's nobody to protect you. You know that it's going to be you if you step up, typically. This is what I'm talking about then, Corey. But ultimately, there's nobody to protect you. You're going to go, the GM, the coach is there, the GM hired the coach, and he's going to back the coach unless something public comes out like in the news or something like what's happened which is is long time coming but when it was behind closed doors man you knew that if you stepped in it was you you were the next target and there was nobody to protect you and you're and if if you're a bubble player what, what do you do it's a really shitty situation for everybody to be put in and that position that person in the position of power knows that And we're talking about Kaylee and some of the unique situations that women face. We've learned this again and again through sexual abuse, uh, through emotional abuse that happens uh, for players. It's not just limited to women, but I think one of the unique challenges that women face is, oh, she's crazy, she's hysterical. You know, there are different names that we apply to people who, who speak up and talk about things, and it's a problem top to bottom. In, in sports where there's that huge power differential. I do see that in the sense that in a lot of sport and things, women, it's almost like they always have to prove themselves to be as good of a sport or as good as an athlete as this and that. And I do see sometimes 
coaches taking advantage of that, uh, like in Kaylee's situation. And we need to weed those people out that, that are like, because it's abusive. I don't care if it's against a man or a female, it's abuse. It does, it's abusive against an individual. It's this is a it's a sensitive topic even for me as a man to be able to talk about because I don't I've been a male I've been privileged in that sense that I've always been able to just go and play and advertising and sponsors were always there so I I, I can't sit here and say that I understand that wouldn't be fair of me to say that I understand what it's like I understand what it's like having to prove myself but not only but as an, only as an athlete not as a male or a female athlete trying to prove that you even belong. And Kaylee talks about how she saw herself as being strong and confident and brave, and then she was abused. And that until then, she felt like she was all of those things and that she lost that. And that's what abuse is about, is there's a power differential, right? And whether it's as an athlete or in a workplace, if you're you're experiencing physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and then— it impacts every part of your life. It undermines your confidence. It undermines your sense of safety. It makes you feel weak because the power differential, and especially the way Kaylee described it, here's a, an elite athlete who's fighting hard for her role, for the finances to be able to continue it, with all kinds of people always nipping at your heels saying, well, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I want Kaylee's spot. That's an awful situation than to, at the same time, say the person who holds all of the power in this decision-making is abusing me. It's a very isolating situation, and I don't want to be hysterical and weak woman, so I'm just going to put up with it. I'm going to deal with it. I'm strong. I can work my way through it, but eventually it wears people down. This might be a hard question, but you— often talk about how trauma is subjective. How you and I could go through the same event and I may be traumatized and you may not be at all. Is the same true of abuse? Could a coach be abusive and one person feel abused and another not? How do we navigate those waters? I think the nature of abuse is the fact that anyone looking objectively from the outside would see that the behavior is not appropriate on the side of the abuser. It, we all create different relationships with people and feel more or less comfortable. We have a fit or not with someone. But when something truly is abusive, it's using your power to control someone that's inappropriate, that's unfair. And I think people can choose to put aside abusive behavior, try to navigate around it, excuse it. But that's different than the abuser not being abusive. It's how you decide to manage that situation. And some people are more able to work around it, you know, pardon it, but it's still abusive behavior. And what makes it abusive is the fact that you would have objective observers from the outside looking at this, reflecting on it and saying, yeah, that's not an appropriate way to treat other people. I'd love your opinion on this, that when you sign up to be a professional athlete, that somehow you're signing up for a certain level of abuse. You should be taking the the, the verbal abuse, the, the hits on the back of the head. Is that something, I mean, I know it's always been there, this yelling and screaming in sports and coaches treating people disrespectfully. Can you talk about what it's like to be an athlete and how different coaches' behaviors impact your your play? This has happened for centuries and years, and we accepted the fact that in order to make better athletes was to tear them down as people and then build them back up. But guess what? They never got be- built back up. <laughs> they Maybe they won a gold medal, but they were tossed to the wayside, right? But as far as today goes, it's not acceptable. Athletes I, will perform better under a coach that they feel has their back. And the best coaches that I ever played for were the ones that I felt like, hey, even if you don't want me on your team, that's fine. Hey, that's cool. Just don't screw me over, right? Or be honest with me, but don't abuse me. And those were the best coaches I played for. But those coaches that did abuse people early had success. They, they won championships, right? They scared their players into winning 
and it never lasts, but it was a gross way to win. And the attitude was to win at all costs, whether it affected someone's mental health or whatever. And, and that's just what it was. It's becoming better. We're not accepting it. Today's player isn't accepting it, which is great, but it's still prevalent and it's still there. What I have always thought when I've heard about or seen abusive coaches is just imagine how things could be if you weren't like that. Because to me, it's leadership 101. You take care of your team. Your team takes care of the business. And I just don't get the whole idea of being abusive of your team members, how that helps you to be successful. It may work in the short term for some individuals, but overall, there's no evidence to support that. No, and, and we're not talking milk and cookies to everybody. That's not what we're saying here. We're talking the difference between abuse. Like sometimes, hey, I needed a kick in the pants. Get your butt going. But it didn't mean that you had to be abusive to me to get me to do it, but I needed to know, right? I had a coach that believed that if there was no chaos happening around the team, that the players, he always wanted the players on edge. Always wanted the players on edge. Everybody to be on edge because that's how he felt he got the most out of his players. And I saw some pretty disturbing things for him to try to create that chaos. But it's getting better because today's player won't accept that. And it slowly started, you know, through generation and generation. But man, you didn't have any rights, though, as, a, as, a, as an athlete. You asked me the question about whether one person may experience something as abuse and another person may uh, not experience as abuse. And I want to sort of put a little uh, barrier around the word abuse because that objectively someone looking from the outside would say that is an inappropriate use of power that's trying to control someone else. But being a demanding coach is a different thing. And I think that's a that's a challenging... Demanding boss. A, demanding. a demanding boss. That's a challenging thought to get around. And I think that's often why people get into these situations where they feel it's abuse and other people think, well, he's just being demanding. That's where you come down to this he said, she said. And there's a lot of different kind of personality dynamics there. Some people do really well with someone who's demanding, I want this done at this time, you got to move, you're gotta, you've got to give me more, versus someone who's actually using their power, using threats, using their position to threaten you inappropriately, that is abuse, and it's different than being someone who's demanding that's trying, actually, to bring the best out of you. Talk about the people that supported you, like your husband, um, and how important that was. It takes a village, and you felt alone as it is, but that person to lean on that's there for you, how important is that? That's everything. Having that group of about five or six people that I had that I knew I could not only vent to, but feel supported from, I knew I was safe and guarded with, so I didn't have to hide, but I also could just be myself with. It was extremely important. And there was kind of two parts to it. So one of it was healing from the past and what had gone on, ending an entire career, what that what that's like, choosing to stand up and say something and what's required in order to be able to do that. And then also to start again in a brand new country where my family isn't and to try and work towards the goals of moving forward in future. And so I definitely had to kind of heal with all three and work forward with all three. And it was, it was tough, but the people that I had in my life made it possible from the sponsors that I had that chose to support me, even if I didn't know I was going to go to 2022 or not, they were just there because they wanted me to succeed and they wanted to support. I'd love you to tell us a little bit about your experience with the psychologist you have obviously got a great psychologist and you were already a resilient person and you already had a lot of strengths, but you came through a lot. How did that experience with the therapist help? I've had multiple therapists. So definitely Team USA was a great support and knowing that the environment I came in was going to be different and I didn't want to bring any of my baggage forward. So I had work to do personally. The team itself didn't want to risk their current 
admin and staff and athletes, and I didn't want that either. So we had work to do as a unit, but they were very supportive and are of all their Team USA athletes and making sure that, you know, athletes do feel safe. And it's not me just championing that. You have Michael Phelps, you have athletes that have come forward that have changed the way that Team USA looks at mental health as a whole, Simone Biles and standing up for herself. So a lot of athletes in this system have changed the game so drastically that when I came into it, it wasn't an abnormal conversation. It was normal and we've got it set up and here's some psychologists you're going to work with and here's the sports and here's how it's going to work that I was like, this is so nice. I'm not searching for things. It's there and the options are there. I just had to ask for it. And so the psychologist that I worked with in Canada for a year, and then the psychologist that I worked with in Team USA, like I said, they were different. One was taking care of the past and one was taking care of the future. Um, and once I made that transition, it went from one to the other. For the entire year during the initial investigation that Bobsled Canada did, a lot of that was healing, trying to make it so that I didn't seem crazy to myself for feeling the way it did because there were certain times I did think like, should I have acted a different way? Should I have said something different? I took a lot of the blame. What if I wasn't female? What if I just didn't stand up for myself or say something? And you're like, no, these actions led to this result. You find there's this victim, victimize it, re-victimization where you're victimized, but then I myself am like self-sabotaging reliving instances. And especially as I go through a year long process that had I not left, I still think I would be in an investigative process and not be an athlete and my career would have been over either way. I very much know that. And so currently still being in the process. So it definitely took some work to get out of the depressive state, the state of like PTSD from having to relive the environment and the situations and the outcomes, having to see that coach and those leadership in bobsled, whether I had to be on the track with them and physically around them all the time, I also don't get to determine that. So the re-feelings and reopening up of wounds that occurred on a daily basis, it kind of made me numb to it after a period of time, but that took a couple of years. And just processing, here's what's happened. Here's my responsible portion for it. Um, here's, you know, the team's portion for it. Here's where, you know, the coach's portion for it. And just, again, compartmentalizing things so that I can process it a bit better and then focusing on how to move forward instead of constantly just living in fear or the past or placing blame or um, staying in the in that negative environment. And so when I did make the transition, like I said, it was important that the work that I had done with my sports psych and my psychologist was able to transition moving forward and that it also wouldn't affect, my sport life wouldn't affect my real life. And this is where family comes in because there are times when Travis and I, my husband will be talking about bobsled and you know, a, a name will come up, something will happen and I'll kind of start going down the rabbit hole and he's like, hold on. So he needed to be a part of the process as well with the psychologist and have a very good understanding of, and he was around in 2018, my husband was, so we were engaged at that point. So he got to see and know and hear and witness the environment so that um, I wasn't also braving it alone with all of it. Kaylee, I 100% believe that you are going to be a critical part of making this change, but what are the avenues? What are you working towards? I believe that a top-down approach needs to occur. And I believe that the IOC has a greater, from the Olympics realm, I don't know how it's going to work in necessarily hockey. But again, I believe in a top-down approach versus a bottom-up. I think requiring definitely the clubs, they need to make changes. And those organizations, you know, development teams, national teams, everyone needs to make changes and be aware but the checks and balances and the accountability piece are really easy to cover up when you're hiring and firing and you get to police yourself. And unfortunately, for a lot of national organizations, NGBs, governing bodies, they get to police themselves and there's nobody holding anybody accountable. So I'm working with 
a bunch of athletes and will be available to anybody in Sport Canada if they ever want to talk, but trying to get a third party to review all investigations so that organizations don't have the ability to hire their own investigators or that governing bodies don't have the ability to write their own terms of reference, both of which happened to me. So not only do they get to hire their own investigators, they get to write their own terms of reference for what gets investigated. So again, as an athlete, you're completely powerless in who investigates and what they investigate when you make a claim. And there needs to be a third party who's responsible that's not paid for by the NGBs so that those checks and balances can occur. And I think Sport Canada needs to do that as a whole. And I think they should be responsible. So I will continue to push and work with the other athletes that are pushing and the sports minister and whoever else in order to make that happen. Because I think that needs to be the very first step that occurs is that real third-party investigations occur so that athletes feel safe and comfortable and won't be retaliated against if and when they do speak up. Because until you get the athletes to talk about their experiences, you don't know the depth to which this occurs until you get 90 of them that come forward or 300 gymnasts. And then there's strength in numbers, how did it get to that point? And everyone's so flabbergasted how it could get there, but it's very easy on how it gets there and governing bodies get to police themselves. And that needs to stop first and foremost. And then what I would love to see and what I will continue to work for and whether it happens in four, eight, 12 years is that at least for the bobsled world and for the Olympic world, that there's some type of like safe sport team. Because I found myself in a position where I make a claim I'm out for a year or two and I can't get citizenship in another country um, in order to compete. Athletes don't get to pick if their country is at war. So you have a refugee team for that. Athletes don't get to pick who their head coaches are. But if you find yourself in an investigation or in an unsafe and physically or sexually or mentally unsafe environment and you make a claim, you should still be allowed to compete at the highest level and not be threatened or scared or have to give up allegiances or hope you have a second passport somewhere else or your career is over. That shouldn't be a risk athletes have to take. And I think the IOC can make big strides in that. And so um, that's my goal. Kaylee, I have a couple of questions that I usually wrap up with and I've learned they're kind of (laughs) hard. Somebody asked me when I was on a podcast, one of them is given where you are in your life right now, what would you tell your 15-year-old self? What would be the lesson you'd say? If you could give them one lesson, what would it be? You know, I would tell my younger self, it's all going to be worth it. And it's all going to be okay. And I truly do feel that it will be in the end. I'm proud of the career that I've had. Has it been easy? No. Have I done things to the best of my ability? Yes. Do I wish there were things that I would have done differently at times? Of course, everybody has that. Um, But it's all going to be worth it. And that the hard times or, you know, the moments I was unsure are worth going through and pushing my limits on. And I think it's important because there were multiple times that I, you know, you don't know if it's worth it or if you want to sacrifice or dedicate as much as you do. Currently, my husband and I are going through IVF to try and have a child. And I've given a lot of my prime years to being the best athlete in the world that I can be. And it is now affecting my reproductive ability as a female who's approaching 40 and wants to continue to compete. And so looking back, I definitely would do things differently for sure. At the same point though, Um, I'm happy with what I've chosen and the career and where I'm at. And so I consistently find myself reminding me that it is worth it. It has been, and I have zero doubts that it will be, and that every step that I'm taking will be worth it to get what I want. And, and finally, This is another tough one, but it's even more challenging with athletes who have attained what you have attained. Greatest achievement. My greatest achievement. That's so hard. That is a very hard one because there's a lot that I'm proud of. And it's not always just the winning. The greatest achievement, I think, as of right now, from like a physical like award standpoint, winning in Beijing in 2022 because I had so many cards stacked against me 
over this last four years, battling immigration citizenship, defamation cases, investigations with safe sport, changing countries, coming from depression, like starting again completely from ground zero. Everything I went through this last four years was rampacked and there was zero certainty on any of it. And I stuck it out and I worked hard and standing on top of that podium was like the cherry on top with all the sprinkles and everything. And I felt so proud for who I was representing, for myself, and for every female that had ever been doubted ever in the history. Because me standing on top of that podium was about so much more, especially with it being monobob. And every coach that told me, you know, we wouldn't have two events and having to push or fight for a second event for women and creating greater opportunity, not just for myself, but being able to see it through and it happening in my career. Um, and so there was so many emotions wrapped up in that podium performance and that it all worked and it all came through at the time that it needed to. And my physical performance in Beijing and how far ahead I was over every other competitor, I, I think that for sure is one of my greatest accomplishments. And it took so much of every aspect, mentally, physically, emotionally, of me to get into that position. But I can honestly look back and say, standing up for myself, a huge accomplishment. Even if I didn't know and there was no guarantee when I did it, this took an internal strength that I didn't know I had and a mental fortitude to get through things that are emotional. Um, and so to not shy away from it and to work through problems and come out stronger, I'm, I'm very happy with that success. I'm going to speak as myself, but also as a woman and also as a Canadian. I am so proud of you that you're a Canadian, that you're a woman, that you are who you are. And I just could not be prouder and, and so grateful for you taking this time. And hopefully we're going to give another voice because I know that you're out there and you're doing all you can and we'd like to support you all we could. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Of course. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the ability to have a voice and this platform and for you guys to be, you know, so gracious and just, again, wanting to help keep this conversation going, knowing it's going to take a team and it's going to take everybody's experiences and knowledge in order to, to make this and the sports world a better place. And so Thank you for my one little tiny sliver corner of the big pie of what it's going to take, but the ability to uh, to come on here and just how great you guys have been. I appreciate it. The Players Tribune dot com.